You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. In this particular instance, we discovered the file that was being used, or really the file that was being disseminated. That's Raj Samani. He's chief scientist at McAfee. And this week, we're discussing the campaign that he and the McAfee Advanced Threat Research Team recently discovered, one that's targeting organizations involved with the upcoming Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. We actually picked it up a little later than the campaign actually began, because the campaign started on the 22nd of December, and we found it on the 29th. So we're about a week behind when the campaign actually began. And and actually, one of the things that we realized was there were two campaigns. You know, there was really the initial campaign, which I I guess was a little clunky. And then there was a modified campaign, which was actually really quite clever. And so, you know, a lot of the research that we published focused on that kind of second campaign, which was really impressive, actually. Well, let's go through it one by one then. The first one, can you describe to us what was going on? Yeah, so so the first one was fairly simple in terms of, you know, it was an email. I mean, it's always an email, isn't it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and of course, within that email, there was a PowerShell script. But what we kind of began to witness was the use of steganography, which came about from the second campaign. And, you know, I think the thing that really surprises us is, actually probably doesn't surprise us anymore, but the bad guys 
follow us and, and not I'm saying me specifically, but they follow the industry. Mm-hmm. And we, and we kind of saw this, I think it was around about November, we published research into APT28. And they were leveraging a technique or a feature called DDE, Dynamic Data Exchange. And, you know, I think the the vulnerability or, or really the feature was identified by Proofpoint just a few weeks earlier. And it kind of says to me that you're, you're seeing threat actors not necessarily using zero days because they don't need to, because what they do is they follow the research that we're doing as an industry and they look to weaponize that as quickly as they can. And, you know, this particular campaign on onto the Olympics was doing something similar, whereby there was research that was published, I, I think it was the 20th of December, um, which probably anyway, it was, it was about seven days before we actually saw it being used and weaponized in the wild. And so it, it shows a lot about the kind of disparity between we we get no visibility about what they do, and yet they can follow people on Twitter, they can listen to our webcasts, listen to our podcasts even, and, and learn the t- tips and techniques that can be used to infect systems across the globe. Yeah. So again, in this first uh, this first uh, crack at it from them, what sorts of things were they up to? Well, so it, actually, it was very similar in terms of the campaign itself. It was just the technique that differed. Hmm. You know, so in the first attack, you know, it was a Word document, and within that was a PowerShell script. But the second time round was different in terms of an email was sent, and actually, probably the first thing to add is the email that was sent actually was from info at nctc.go.kr. So it it was actually the National Counter-Terror Center that they spoofed the email from. Mm -hmm. And and what was interesting was the NCTC at the time were actually doing like preparedness drills. So it wouldn't have been out of the norm for organizations to receive an email from NCTC. What was different, and obviously the way that we were able to determine that it was different was, you know, the, the IP address that was used was an IP address coming out of Singapore. It wasn't the mail server from NCTC. So, look, it was it was using authority, but actually the timing of it was was pretty clever. You know, it was it was it was sending that email, and the word attachment appeared to be, you know, had the in Korean. It said organized by the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry, Pyeongchang. Winter Olympics, and apologies if I mispronounced that, but mm. what they did was they actually sent the email to icehockey at pyeongchang2018.com, but they actually copied about, well, just in excess of 300 organizations in that. And, and, and one of the things I can say is, is that, we, you know, we, we're, we're pretty confident that there were some organizations and some recipients that actually fell for it and subsequently were, were infected. And so this uh, this steganography component, can you describe that for us? First of all, just to describe to us, what does that mean? Okay, so steganography is where you can embed uh, data within an image file. So, you know, it looks like an image file. It looks like a normal picture, but actually you can hide content and hide data inside that. Hmm. So it's a really clever way of obfuscating and, and hiding data within within image files so it looks like an ordinary an ordinary file but it's not and you know they actually used a tool called ps image which had been published about a week earlier 
So again, you know, they were they were monitoring the types of tools that the industry were producing, and they used that for nefarious purposes. And quick turnaround there as well. I mean, they're not wasting. They're not. They're not sitting on their hands. I mean, it was a week, and and actually there was you know it, there was a lot of obfuscation involved in, I guess, that kind of second iteration because you know the user would receive an email, and within that would be a word document. If they enabled the content, there'd be a um, a PowerShell script. Inter- incidentally, we know who was behind this. It was an author by the name of John. So that clears it all up, right? John was behind it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but, but actually, <laughs> you know, the the PowerShell script was actually author, had the, had the name of John as the author. Hmm. So what it then does, it then connects to a remote server, and that remote server then downloads an image file, and within that image file, there was uh, another script within that, which then was launched via the command line, and then would then connect. And actually, that PowerShell script then, you know, that was then executed, had a lot of obfuscation within that. Obviously, once that once that script ran, it would then connect to the command and control server, and uh, and obviously that would then allow the criminals the ability to be able to connect to these particular systems and you know we, we were able to actually gain access to the log server and and having a look at, through the logs what we were able to determine was you know that there were connections from south korea so we know that there were systems that were compromised as part of this attack and what does it seem like they're after anything they want because once they've got access to these systems by the c2 server then they can do what they want i mean you know, I, th- I think that's kind of where we kind of hit a wall, which was, you know, we were able to determine how they got in. We were able to determine the fact that systems were impacted. But what, what they did was they then they then had a uh, like an encrypted session between the victim and the control server. And, and by the way, the control server is actually hosted in Costa Rica. So what we don't know, obviously, was what's inside that connection. What we, you know, obviously, because it's encrypted and, uh, our ability to be able to go further really requires us being able to get access to the C2 server and then being able to inspect what goes on thereafter. So, so obviously, that's kind of one of the challenges that we face as, as an industry is at some point, you know, we can only tell some of the story. Now, looking at your research, was it, is it accurate that one of the um, the command and control server um, seemed to be a compromised server, a, a server that perhaps the people running it didn't know that they were uh, that they were uh, serving up this function. So, so actually, it's the it's the Apache server that that was being used for the logging purposes. I see, and that was yeah, and that was compromised. And so, what what appears to happen here is is that somebody's just running the server, are completely unaware that it's being used for malicious purposes. And so in terms of uh, attribution, in terms of who's behind this, uh, what kind of clues do you have there? Well, so we intentionally don't do attribution. Hmm. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons we don't do that is because you know, we can have all of the technical indicators in place. And w- what I will tell you is the technical indicators suggest that it's nation state and it's a group that speaks Korean. Now, you're going to say to me, "Haha, Raj, okay, I know who that is, right? <laughs> it's, you know, if, if you look at the list, then it's pretty much one, you know, one entity. But there is clear evidence to suggest that there are groups out there that intentionally leverage and use false flags. 
you know, for example, using language packs or, you know, even something as simple as making the IP address appear to come from somewhere it isn't. So what we won't do is, and, and, and what we will never do as a company is say, okay, we believe it was country X or country Y. I know, you know, there are other organizations that may be willing to do that, but I kind of feel, I, I think we've got a kind of sense of purpose, which is, you know, what we'll do is we'll share all of our technical evidence with the industry so that we can learn from this. You know, fundamentally, we need to understand the threat actor and how they're evolving and how they're getting better. But any information with regards to attribution, you know, should be left to public sector, such as law enforcement. And so how can people protect themselves against this sort of thing? I, I probably want to just take a slight detour. Um, okay. This is actually one of four publications and, and, and really phenomenal research that my team have done. Um, like I said, we began in, uh, I think November was the first one that I think was remarkable where we, we had evidence of you know a group that we believe could be APT28 using dynamic data exchange. We, we then had um, a, a nation state who've never really done this before, who migrated over to the mobile space. They actually went after religious groups, we believe to target defectors. And then just, uh, I think just a week after this one, we published research on a similar nation state who were going and using uh, social media and chat apps to go after journalists as well as defectors. And so the number one thing that anybody can do is be aware of what's happening. Because, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen one of the most prevalent and nefarious threat actors move to mobile. And that's never happened before. We've seen threat actors leverage dynamic data exchange. We've seen them using steganography. This is all new. Hmm. And so we need to be aware of the tactics and techniques that they're using because, and I'm not going to quote Sun Tzu because, you know, it's, it's 2018, but hmm. we need to understand the way that these threat actors are evolving so we can better defend ourselves. And I would say, you know, publications like Cyberwire, for example, and organizations that, like such as ISAFA and others, they're so important in terms of being up to date with the way that these techniques are being leveraged and being used. And so I think for me, the most important thing here is, is be aware of the way that threat actors are evolving and adapt and adjust your, te- your defense accordingly. I'm not quite sure how to ask this question. Um, the fact that this is centered around the Olympics, um, do you think that they are specifically targeting Olympic organizations, or do you think that the Olympics are sort of a, an excuse, if you will, you know, a framework for which to hang a campaign that they would have done anyway? Did you follow where I'm going with that question? Yeah, no, I mean, if you look at the organizations that they targeted, they went after organizations predominantly associated with the Olympics. The entire theme of this was associated with the Olympics. So this was a targeted campaign specifically focused on the Olympics. You know, much like we saw the the APT28 group in November, that was targeted at organizations associated with the military, um, specifically those engaged with the US, right? It's, it is very, very specific, specifically minded towards compromising specific organizations. And so, look, there's no doubt in my mind they wanted to go after these organizations. And so that points to more of an espionage goal than, say, uh, making money. Oh, yeah, no, without doubt. I, you know, 
I remember the last time we spoke, we talked about ransomware, for example. You know, there was uncertainty whether ransomware is making money or for disruption. I mean, this one for me suggests absolutely intended for espionage. I don't think there's any monetary gain involved in any of this at all. So if people want to find out more about this this particular campaign and some of the other work that you and your team are doing, what's the best way to do that? So we actually post everything on our blog site, which is securingtomorrow.mcafee.com. Um, but, you know, have a look on Twitter. We, we, you know, myself and the team will always tweet all of the latest research that we're doing. So it's Twitter, um, which is at Raj, R-A-J underscore Samani, S-A-M-A-N-I. But also McAfee Labs. We've got our own Twitter feed through McAfee Labs as well. And, you know, we've got a great pipeline of research coming out. So... The best thing you can do is be up to speed with the way that these criminals are adapting their techniques and, you know, hopefully we'll shine a light on that. Can you speak to the nature of community when it comes to researchers like yourself, both at McAfee and, and other companies, the importance of putting this information out there and collaborating? Oh, I'd, I'd love to speak about community because, you know, I started in this industry and it, it, it was an infosec community and, you know, it's it's now become an industry. What we do is we collaborate, we communicate, we share information with partners wherever we can. And in most cases, I would say it's well received. But, you know, lately there's been a kind of trend of individuals to kind of, I guess, talk badly about vendors. And so I'll give you an example. So uh, Bruce Schneier recently did a blog on the No More Ransom Initiative, and he was very, very positive about it. And in the reader comments, there was one individual who says, look, I don't trust McAfee. I don't trust Kaspersky. They've done no more ransom. What's in it for them? And and, and what I would say to that is, look, I, I realize, you know, yes, we're a commercial company and, you know, commercial companies are there to make money. But for us as researchers, we we do everything that we can to to share samples with each other. And, you know, when WannaCry happened, we were communicating and, on Slack forums and direct messages and doing everything we can to get the information out there. And so we're trying our best to shine a light to this. And if you've got any feedback, if anybody kind of has any suggestions, please let us know. And, you know, it's an open door. And if anybody wants to collaborate and, and share information with us, we're willing to do that. I mean, you know, we, we launched No More Ransom against ransomware. That's about 100 organizations. We also work on the Cyber Threat Alliance, for example. That's ourselves and Semantic and Fortinet and others. So. Really, the intent here is is we've got to work together because the bad guys are working together and they've been doing it for a long time. So as an industry, I think we've got a lot of got a lot of catching up to do. Our thanks to Raj Samani from McAfee for joining us. You can read their complete report, which is titled Malicious Document Targets Pyeongchang Olympics. It's on the McAfee Labs website at securingtomorrow.mcafee.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. 
They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.